the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. We're in this fourth chapter, and this passage, which is usually referred to as the temptation. I guess it should be temptations, since there were more than one. Have any of you thought through the uh, the whole issue that we talked about last week about how in the world Yeshua could be tempted in the first place? Did you come up with any good other explanations? No? Okay. Well, um, you, you as you study this, you become more and more aware of the fact that the reason this is recorded was for our sake. In other words, we find out something about Yeshua that we otherwise wouldn't have known. And... Uh, Part of what we find out about Yeshua is that he could be tempted, even if we don't understand that. Yeah, yeah, right, right. The comments made that, you know, in the prayer, uh, in the garden prayer, he says, uh, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. In other words, you know, he's praying in anguish because he knows that he's he's soon to die, but as as the God man, wouldn't he know that three days later he's going to raise anyway? So what's the big deal? <laughs> so, but but the same thing is true for us in a way. Um, we all know that we're going to raise from the dead too. I mean, the, the time is longer between our death and the resurrection, but nonetheless, we all know that we're going to raise from the dead too. So why does death haunt us? And and I think it should. I mean, maybe haunt is too severe of a word, but it, it bothers us. So it's yeah. I remember a bumper sticker said it's it's not that you know I'm not afraid of dying. It's just how long it lasts or something like that. Um, you know it's and yet there, there is a sense in which there's an unknown for some at least. You die and then you, what comes and you're you're going into this unknown and that's one of the the great truths about uh, having faith in Yeshua is that we have by faith we know what's going to happen after we die. Yeah, uh, the communists made that uh, for Yeshua, it was more than dying himself. It was dying on behalf of others, which means he was taking upon himself their guilt. He was, he, the Holy One who never had sinned, was now being viewed and treated as though he was not only a sinner, but he was like, I mean, the big time sinner, sinner more than anyone else. Um, there's some emotional and psychological aspects of that that probably are beyond our comprehension. But we do still struggle with this mystery of the Incarnation. Nevertheless, in our text in Matthew chapter 4, he is tempted. And the writer of the Hebrews says he was tested or tempted in every point like as we are, yet without sin. He understands, is part of the reason this was written, he, he understands what we struggle with. He's been there. He knows what it's like. And, and we, we should never think of uh, walking in his footsteps as though they're footsteps we could never match because he really doesn't understand what I'm going through. He doesn't really know. He hasn't really... Yes, he does know. And wouldn't he have known that without ever experiencing it? Yes, if he's the all-knowing one. But would we have believed he knew it? You know, when we see that he has experienced the same things that we experience and that he came through them victorious, it gives us the sense that, okay... Um, he knows. He knows my burdens. He knows my cares. He knows how I feel. Uh, you ever been slandered? He was slandered. 
You ever been uh, betrayed? He was betrayed. Have you ever been misunderstood? Oh, guess what? He was very much misunderstood. Um, have you ever been caught in the middle of a political infight that you didn't know how to get out of? Well, <laughs> he was caught between people fighting for power. And uh, so he understands that. He knows that. He knows exactly. And that gives us a certain level of comfort. So um, in, in verse 3, it says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones uh, become bread. So the first temptation then is related to the fact that he'd just been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He was very hungry. So the physical aspect of the temptation The manner in which the temptation is given does not question the divine nature of Yeshua. It rather presupposes it. The conditional clause, if you are the Son of God, could probably just as well be translated, since you are the Son of God, or since you claim to be the Son of God, why don't you get yourself out of this predicament? Here you are in the desert without any food. You're ready to die. You've fasted enough that your body is no longer able to sustain itself. So, since you are the Son of God... Do what you need to do. Make some bread. Turn these uh, stones into bread. This would prove his divine... uh, Satan is therefore not tempting Yeshua to prove his divine nature. That is a given as far as the temptation is concerned. Rather, in light of the fact that Yeshua was famished after his long period of fasting, the temptation Satan offered was to use his divine powers to fulfill his own needs. Someone has said, Sonship of the living God... He, Satan suggested, surely means Jesus has the power and right to satisfy his own needs. But how could using his divine power to fulfill his own needs be construed as wrong? The answer lies in the fact that Yeshua had voluntarily given up the use of some of his divine attributes in order to fulfill the mission given to him by the Father, that is, to become as a man to redeem mankind. The temptation, then, was to use his sonship in a way other than to redeem mankind. In other words, he came for a particular mission, and using his, uh, his powers for something else was therefore outside of that mission. The temptation then was to use his sonship in a way inconsistent with God's ordained mission. This, emphasis, this is emphasized by Yeshua's response, which was to quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. Um, you know, that, I, I know years ago, don't hold this against me, I used to watch Star Trek occasionally, and I actually watched some of the, the Next Generation, uh, you know, after the old Star Trek. And who was the who was the uh, was it Q or somebody that had this like omnipotent power? But he but he was constantly constrained to use it in in personal ways, in in you know ways for himself that caused all kinds of grief and all kinds of trouble. Um, I, I think that is kind of. A little bit of the of what's going on here. In other words, Yeshua came as the servant of Adonai. He didn't come to serve himself. And so, to use his his miraculous powers in a way that was not for his mission as a servant uh, was contrary to what he had come for. All right, verse four. But he, that is Yeshua, answered and said, "It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God." Yeshua counters the tempting suggestion of Satan by quoting scripture introduced by it is written. It is the inspired word of God that stands as the absolute rule upon which Yeshua's actions are based. You know, obviously, this is too obvious. We almost don't have to say it. But um, (laughs) spiritual warfare, as taught to us by our own master, is not by praying some special uh, prayer that somebody thought up. It's not doing a mantra, you know. It's not, uh, it's not waving your prayer of Jabez flag. 
No. It is understanding, knowing, and applying the Word of God. All right. So, let's look first at the uh, quote. You can see that it's uh, from Deuteronomy 8.3. In the Tanakh, in the Hebrew text, not upon bread alone does man live, but upon all that comes forth from the mouth of Adonai does man live. Now, I've given a very literal wooden translation so that you could see the order of the words. The Septuagint is very close. Not upon bread alone does man live, but upon every word that goes forth through the mouth of God does man live. Very, very similar. And Matthew quotes essentially the Septuagint, leaving off the final clause. Uh, he doesn't say, uh, not upon bread alone does man live, but upon every word does man live. He, le- he leaves that off. But that's because it's understood, right? It's not really integral to, to the uh, verse. And the reason is, is because... If man does not live by X, then he does live by Y. And so you can just, you know, we do that all the time. We leave clauses out because they're, they're understood to be in, in what we're saying next. The uh, Septuagint adds the word rhema as explanatory for the Hebrew, everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. Not upon bread alone does man live, but upon every word that goes forth through the mouth of God. And the Hebrew doesn't actually have that term word in it. It just says all that goes forth from the mouth of Adonai. So you, this, for those of you that uh, want to study some of what the Septuagint does, the Septuagint is a translation. So we would expect that they would kind of fill in what maybe Greek speakers might not understand uh, or they think they might not understand. And of course, our, uh, our Greek text that Matthew uses uh, follows the same word, rhema. Rhema is in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek, usually refers to a spoken word. Not, it doesn't always have to. Logos can refer to a spoken word as well. But rhema usually is the process of speaking, the words that come forth from someone's mouth, which is what is going on here. It, it doesn't mean that it's not written. You know, the charismatic movement has made a distinction between rhema and logos. The rhema is, is what you get through direct revelation from God, and the Logos is what is written in the Word itself. But that distinction is somewhat arbitrary. The Word of God, that is that which comes forth from his mouth, is the Torah, and it was written down. The context of the quote is essential in understanding Yeshua's choice of this scripture. Moses is reminding the Israelites that their physical existence was obviously dependent upon God, not upon their own abilities. The manna was clear proof of this, for God commanded that bread rain down from heaven in order to provide food for the people. Thus, their physical well-being was the direct result of God's miraculous provision. Indeed, the very reason that God brought the test of hunger upon the Israelites in the first place was so that they would know that their existence depended entirely upon the Almighty. He says that. I'm going to, put the, I'm going to test them with hunger to see if they love me with their whole heart. In this way, Yeshua is rebuffing Satan for the idea that he could use his divine powers in a self-serving way. The Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His divinely ordained mission meant that the voluntary suspension of his divine attributes was necessary, and their use in a self-serving way would therefore annul the very reason for which he had come. It is this same mind that we as disciples of the Master must also have. Our mission is not such that obedience to God's will is given in order to gain personally, but that in our obedience his name might be sanctified upon the earth. You know, when I was uh, in Edmonton doing this uh, seminar on Greek worldview versus Hebrew worldview, 
it just, I was uh, reminded of how different the aspect of obedience is from a Hebrew perspective and from a Greek perspective. Why do you obey God from a Greek perspective? Well, because you'll get smarter. Well, because uh, God will bless you. Uh, Well, because you'll do better in your job. Uh, Why do you obey God? Well, because it just makes life better for me. And what's a Hebrew perspective? Why do you obey God? Well, because he's my father and I'm his son. We have this relationship. I, that's who I am. I obey because I'm, I'm a member of a covenant. My whole definition is defined by who he is and what he's told me to do. Right. There, there's no option. And uh, not saying that all those other things don't attend, uh, that the blessing comes and that it works and, and so forth and so on. But I don't think to myself, let's see. If I, base, if I obey 75%, I'll get 75% gain. Well, let's see. Can I live with 75%? No, I mean, that's, that's not the perspective of the Scriptures. The Scriptures is that we obey God because He's God and we're His people. We obey Him because He told us to. Even when we don't understand it. Even when we can't figure out why. We still do it. And, and moreover, we, we have been taught uh, by the Scriptures, and hopefully by our parents, that the joy comes not in what happens after we obey, but the joy comes in actually obeying. You know, while you're obeying, you say, okay, this is the joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. What is the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is obeying him. When, when we come to realize that the great king has called us into his service, you know, if he's just telling us, could you go over there and get that hammer, you're happy to do it. He's the great king. Not that many people get to hand him a hammer. So it's okay being a gopher. That, that's just fine. And you're happy to do it. Now, I, I wish it was always that way. Obviously, we, we fight some other battles, right? I mean, the selfish thing and this, the flesh and sinful nature and so forth would cause us to think, no, wait a minute, what are you getting out of this? But I think as we, as we live in that mode and as we, shall we say, practice holiness, which I think is a good way to say it, we practice holiness, we maybe eventually come to the point like Paul did where he said, whether I live or whether I die, it's for the glory of God. You know, all, so it takes the fear out of what comes tomorrow. Because what comes tomorrow? Obeying God. I, I love to read stories of people during uh, the history of the Jewish nation, during uh, pogroms and, and so forth. I mean, terrible things would be done to their cities, to their houses, whatever. And the next morning, what would they be doing? Finding a place to get together for morning prayers. Like, how can you have morning prayers? Your synagogue just got burned to the ground. Oh, what do you mean, how can we do morning prayers? That's what God asked us to do. That's who we are. And it's that mentality that maintains a a, a deep-seated joy that can't be taken away. I think we learn from Yeshua's own response here, we learn that lesson. Moreover, we must live... With this reality in view, obedience to God is in itself a resignation to his promised provision. For it is when we rely fully upon him that he is glorified. For when our needs are met, it is seen as the result of what the Almighty has done for us, not what we have been able to accomplish by our own strength. You know, in the, in the prosperity movement, when somebody's rich, everybody says, wow, he's really holy. In other words, his riches are the result of what he's done. So who gets the glory? Yeah, he does. And then the person that's poor is viewed as, uh, you know, or sick. I mean, there's nothing worse than if you're, in a, if you're in a community that believes God doesn't want anybody sick. And the only reason you're sick is because you're sinning. 
I mean, you can't be, you can't die. You can't die well in that community. You can't die for the glory of God. And I have no idea what they do when they say, when Paul says, whether I live or whether I die. It's like, wait a minute, if you were doing what God wanted you to do, you'd be prosperous, you'd have all the wealth you wanted, you'd have everything. You know, and what about Job? And I mean, there's just too many, there's just too many expressions in the scriptures that say it isn't always the way the prosperity preachers are telling us. In fact, it's usually not the way prosperity preachers are telling us. Yeshua, therefore, demonstrates the reality of Habakkuk 2.4. For while Israel demanded bread but died in the wilderness, Yeshua denied himself bread, retained his righteousness, and lived in faithful submission to God's word. The righteous will live on the basis of his faith. Of course, that was the verse that uh, struck the match of the Reformation. All right. So, first temptation is thwarted and done away with by a quoting of Scripture. Verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. The holy city is obviously Jerusalem, but why doesn't he just call it Jerusalem? The holy one is coming into the holy city. And Satan is hopes that he can cause him to be less than holy. Again, the manner of moving from one location to another is not given, but the scene is that of the temple complex. The pinnacle of the temple is literally the wing of the temple. And temple here must stand for the entire complex, since it's hard to think that Yeshua as a non-Levite would have been allowed to enter the temple proper. The Greek word, uh, uh, which is translated wing, terougion, uh, is only found here in the apostolic scriptures. To what does this refer? We know that the rabbis considered the temple to be at the center of Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem was at the center of the earth, or the earth's navel. And even some of the rabbis say it's the high point of the whole earth, the highest corner of the Temple Mount was the southeast corner, or else one might think of, the, uh, of a high point of the southwestern corner from which the shofar was played. Regardless the exact location, it doesn't really matter. The picture that is given to us by Matthew is that Yeshua is standing a long ways up from the ground. In other words, he's not going to jump down from there and, and survive, apart from a divine miracle. I, I don't know, uh, I forgot to look, I was going to look this up, but I, I forgot to do it. I don't remember exactly what the distance would have been, but I know today it's probably what? Four stories or so when you stand on the ground, look up at the southeast corner, and it may have been more than that. Yeah, 50, 60 feet, something, I don't know. Yeah, five or six-story building probably, something to that effect. If you haven't been there, but, I mean, if you stood there on the southern escapement of the Temple Mount, you, you can just look at that corner and say, hmm, I wonder if that's where Yeshua was standing. Because it is the high point. Because what happens is the, the, the valley comes down, goes down at that corner. So it's not as high as the, at the other corners uh, of the Temple Mount. So, Satan says to him, verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, he, 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 if you are the Son of God, meaning since you are the Son of God, since you have said you are the Son of God, since you are this big, important person, surely you could jump down and God would save you. The demands of Satan against our master involved the prohibition regarding testing God. Testing God means presuming upon his grace and promises. God's people are to realize that God's mercies are always the direct outpouring of his gracious intentions and not that which anyone can demand. 
Throwing oneself down from a high point would involve a presumption that God is required to act in miraculous miraculous ways to overcome one's own neglect or willful disregard for God's will. Preserving life is a central theme in the Torah, and preserving one's own life is included in this. The sixth commandment, which prohibits murder, includes suicide as well. So you're not allowed to commit suicide any more than you're allowed to commit murder. That's, that's, That's not allowed. That's contrary to God's commandments. That's prohibited. You can't jump off a building. That's contrary to his Torah. Having been rebuffed in his first attempt by Yeshua's reliance upon the Scriptures, the evil one resorts to quoting Scripture as well, though he does so poorly, for though he quoted correctly, his application of the text itself was such as to turn that which was righteous into sin. This, of course, is always the way of the tempter, for he excels at turning righteousness into evil. I think it's amazing. I heard a sermon one time called the sermon that Satan preaches and, you know, from this text and from the other text. Just because somebody quotes the Bible doesn't mean that they're righteous or that they have righteous intentions or that they're right. Um, in fact, it, it, it causes all kinds of consternation, I think, especially amongst young people. At least this was the case when I was in college. Because you get away from home and you start saying, wait a minute, the, you know, the Mormons use the same Bible, the Christians use the same Bible, the Catholics use the same Bible. You know, the Greek Orthodox use the same Bible. And they all are different. They have way different doctrines. So how can you know what's true, right? I mean, have any of you gone through that thinking in your head? So this whole issue of how do we interpret the Bible and how do we apply it is, is key to its proper use as far as God is concerned. This, of course, is always the way of the tempter. He excels at turning righteousness into evil. Doesn't he? Uh, you take anything that pervades our world by way of evilness, and they're not, I'm not anything, but many things. They're God created them for our good. You know, it's it's He loves to do that, <laughs> and He does it so well. Um, even Kohelet teaches us: be careful when you go to the house of prayer. You know, you can get proud there too. <laughs> you can sin. You can sin in your religion just as easily as you can sin. In, in, you know, outside of your religion, if there's such a thing. Okay, his quote, introduced by the common for it is written, is from Psalm 91, 11, and 12. The context of the psalm speaks of those who find their refuge in God and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. God is the one who protects his own and brings them through all manner of trouble. He offers safety from enemies as well as from natural calamity. But such protection, by the way, he, that, that psalm also says he offers protection from wild animals. And Mark is the, remember in Mark it says that there were wild animals in the desert while he was there. But such protection is for those who have made God their dwelling place, meaning those who have trusted in him and have therefore chosen faithfulness as their manner of life. In other words, the context of the psalm is that of those who live in faithful obedience to the God of the covenant and who therefore are blessed by his protecting hand. So the quote is, uh, is pretty straightforward. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It's The Septuagint uh, essentially translates the Hebrew. The only thing Matthew has left out in the quote is to keep you in all your ways. I should say Matthew's reporting of Satan's quote. The Hebrew says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And when Satan quotes it, he says, He will command his angels concerning you, And on their hands, they will bear you up. He doesn't say in 
to guard you in all your ways. The fact that he leaves this clause out does not warrant the charge that he misquoted Scripture, at least not in my opinion. For such general quotations from such general formulations are in line with the manner in which the Tanakh is quoted elsewhere. In other words, Yeshua himself leaves some things out when he quotes. He doesn't. So you don't have to say every word in a a verse to, to have it an accurate quote. However, the deleted clause may point to the manner in which Satan was attempting to interpret and apply the Scripture wrongly. For in leaving out the clause, he will guard you in all of your ways. The general tenor of the psalm, that those who find shelter in the shadow of the Almighty are the ones he protects, is de-emphasized. In other words, when, when you read this Hebrew, in all your ways, you think of Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And you shall speak of these things when you sit in your house, when you, uh, when you write, when you walk on the way. So when you, when you read this idea of he will guard you in all of your paths, it reminds you that it means you're walking in the way that God wants you to walk. The fact that uh, Satan left it out means he probably doesn't want to emphasize that part of the psalm. What exactly was the force of this temptation? It appears that he intends to entice Yeshua into using some significant miracle to prove his status as Messiah, much like the miracle of Elijah on Mount Carmel as proof of the superiority of Israel's God over the pagan god Baal. You have to believe that if, in fact, the southeast corner was the place where this temptation uh, occurred, there were a lot of people going up and down steps on the south escapement of the... Of, that's how you went in and out. So if all of a sudden they saw somebody you know, jump off the corner and they saw angels swoop down and, and you know, break his fall, wouldn't that be just like proof positive of who he was? I mean, what better way to, to let everybody know that you are the Son of God than, you know, do this miraculous thing? Remember what Elijah did while he, when he was on Mount Carmel. He said, okay, everybody, we'll, we'll get an ox and you get an ox and we'll... We'll put it on the altar, and then you call on your God and to bring down fire. Didn't happen. So then what does Elijah do? He pours barrels of water over the whole thing just to make it impossible to ignite, and then it just goes up in, in you know, total flames and consumes everything, including the stones and what, what have you. Um, so here's a miracle. I mean, here's something that nobody could have faked. But the major miracle of attestation regarding the Messiah was his resurrection, Right? What did Yeshua say? There's not going to be any sign given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Right? That, that the Son of Man will be in the earth three days, three nights, and, and be raised again. Other miracles that he performed were in line with what the prophets said the Messiah would do. Remember? We'll, we'll be there not too far from now. John said, uh, yeah. I agree. The point is being made that uh, the resurrection was not, was not necessarily as public as this would have been. Right? I mean, that's the point you're making. Um, although he was for 40 days, and he lived for 40 days after the resurrection before he ascended. So, I mean, at least people in his family, with his group, yeah. And, and you're saying this would have been a little more, a little more visible. So still we have this, uh, yeah, we have this element of faith, which I think is essential, as I'm saying here. Um, the miracles that Yeshua did usually involved compassion upon the sick and the poor, right? It was healing. It was caring for the widows. It was that kind of a thing. Thus, the devil attempts to make faith subservient to miracles, when in fact miracles are always understood only when preceded by faith. You know, even, even if he had done that, 
those who wanted to reject him would have found a way to explain it. Right? Remember the parable of uh, Lazarus and uh, the rich man? And the rich man says, please send somebody back and tell them about this horrible place and, uh, so that they won't come here. And what's the response? Look, if they don't believe someone who's raised from the dead, what are they going to believe? They won't believe you either. And in the book of Revelation, when everything as prophesied starts coming to pass like clockwork, what do they say? Oh, we were wrong and God was right? No. They say, let the stones fall on us, and they curse him. So miracles by themselves do not produce faith. And uh, I think somewhere down the road I make that point. Uh, Ken, you had a question, comment? Sure. Right. Well... And uh, uh, the point is being made that the Pharisees themselves asked for a sign, which is when Yeshua said there won't be any sign given but the sign of Jonah. When he did show them signs, they said he did it by whose power? Yeah, Beelzebul. So without faith, you don't understand miracles. But more to the point, putting oneself in harm's way in order to force God to perform a miracle is strictly forbidden by the Torah, as Yeshua immediately makes known by quoting Deuteronomy 6.16 in order to refute the improper interpretation of Psalm 91 by the enemy. This in itself ought to inform us regarding the master's hermeneutic. Scripture, properly interpreted, coincides with other scriptures. This presupposes the unity of the biblical text as the product of divine inspiration. I mean, he's saying, look, the way you interpreted Psalm 91 does not coincide with the obvious meaning and the obvious commandment of Deuteronomy 6, uh, 16. So your interpretation has to be wrong. What does he, what does he imply? That Psalm 91 has to agree with Deuteronomy 6. If Psalm 91 doesn't agree with Deuteronomy 6, what do we do with Psalm 91? We get rid of it. The touchstone is the Torah. The Torah is the measure. And so we presume that if it's in our Bible, it's going to have to agree with Torah. Of course, this is where we have gotten into trouble with the so-called separation between the so-called Old Covenant and New Covenant, where the Old Covenant is the Old Testament and the New Covenant is the New Testament. And so we make this separation because the printers put a page in between. And, um, and now we say, well, what, what's in the New Testament doesn't have to agree with what's in the Old Testament. And so as a result, we don't, we don't have that test for authenticity uh, in terms of inspiration. All right, let's go on with uh, uh, verse 7. Yeshua said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When do you suppose Yeshua memorized that verse? Does that, does, does this whole text, you know, I was sitting at my desk thinking to myself, you know, there are moms who are homeschooling their kids. And you just don't under, maybe understand the widest ramifications of how what you're teaching them is going to work out. I mean, here was Miriam teaching little Yeshua Torah before he ever got to, uh, before he ever got to the synagogue, before, you know, and Joseph was, I'm sure, teaching him as well. And they were reading Torah and reading Torah in the synagogue. And when it came time, he knew, he had understood, he, he studied, he knew, what the, he knew his texts. He was able to discern the misinterpretation by applying what he had been taught. And I'm not denying in any way his divine nature. I'm saying that as a man, he came and learned Torah the same way we learn Torah, only he did it without the uh, the spirit of laziness or the spirit of rebellion or those kinds of things that we deal with. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig 
from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a Messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorResource.com. The counter quote is from Deuteronomy 6.16, and Yeshua introduces it by the common, it is written. He emphasizes by the use of, on the other hand, it is written, literally, again, it is written, that one text may be properly understood and applied by the application of a second text. Yeshua does not quote this text, then, in order to refute the truth of Psalm 91, but to show the manner in which it is to be properly interpreted and applied. In other words, it is true that God will care for his righteous ones. That God will even send his angels to care for you if need be. That's true. There's nothing wrong with that in Psalm 91. It's just the way that, that Satan applied it was wrong. Since the Torah expressly forbids putting God to the test, the protection promised in the psalm cannot include those cases where God is disregarded or disobeyed. When one disregards the commands of God, one cannot count on God's blessings. It's just that simple. You cannot disregard what God has said and then expect that God's going to bail you out. He may, he can, but he most certainly doesn't have to. And he's told us time and again that whom the Father loves, he chastens, right? I mean, we can give illustration after illustration. You know, you can pray all you want that God will reduce your waistline, but if you keep eating junk food, it's not going to happen. And does God want your, your waistline reduced? Probably so if you're overweight, because it's not healthy for you. But you can pray and be holy and pray and pray and pray and pray that God will reduce your waistline, but you know what? You have to diet. You have to say no to the fatty foods, and you have to say no to the junk stuff, and you have to eat, eat healthy and eat right and get some exercise. That's what you have to do. You can lay your Bible underneath your pillow every night and say, Lord, fill my head with these words. I'm going to happen. God blesses obedience. And the reason I put Genesis 18:19 because remember that story where uh, the, the, the messengers that came to Avraham are talking to themselves, should we tell Avraham what we're going to do down here at Sodom, Gomorrah, how we're going to annihilate this place? He says, yes, we should, because God has made a covenant with him, and he is going to command his children so that they will keep my precepts and keep my commandments and keep my ways in order that God may bring upon them the blessing which he has promised to Abraham. Now, if you stop and think about that for a minute, it's, it, the promise that was made to Abraham was this. I will bless you. I will bless your seed. I will prosper you. I will make your name great. It was not, no, if, 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 if. But how was that going to happen? He was going to teach his offspring to obey God so that God could bring the blessing upon them that he had promised to Abraham. God doesn't bless disobedience. So along with the covenant promises comes God's commitment to make you holy so that he can bless you. And that's why his choosing you and his justifying you and his sanctifying you all fit together. What God has begun, he will finish. He intends to bless us because he has promised he would. But that means he intends to make us holy so that he can bless us. All right. Deuteronomy 6.16. It's, the quote is directly from the Septuagint, essentially, which essentially represents the Hebrew. The final clause is not quoted as, uh, as you tested him at Massah. 
since the major point is the prohibition regarding testing the Lord your God. So he just gives us the first phrase, you shall not test or tempt the Lord your God. What does it mean to test God? The incident at Massah in Exodus 17 regarding the need for water is the point. The people of Israel are quite sure that Moses has led them into the wilderness in order for them to perish. Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Oh, really? Moses was the one who brought you up? The statement of the people was not so much a question of Moses' ability as it was a disregard for God's presence among them. He had promised to protect them and provide for them. Rather than arguing against Moses and quarreling amongst themselves, they should have sought God's help. For he had already promised to give it. He said, I will go ahead of you. I will make your way for you. Thus, Moses called the place Massah and Meribah, which means to test and to dispute. This means to test God is to act outside of the realm of faith, to fail to take God at his word, and even to act as though God is not to be trusted. That's to test God. If God has said it and you don't believe it, you're testing God. That's pretty serious. You know, we, we, we sweep uh, uh, unbelief under the rug. So, well, everybody has trouble believing. Unbelief is testing God. Either we agree God can or he can't. If we, if we agree that he can then we live on the reality of that. I'm not saying there aren't times when, we, when our faith is weak and we need to be strengthened in our faith. We all have that. But for us to say on the one hand that God is good and that God uh, supplies our needs and that God will make our way and that even if he brings us into difficult times, it will be for his glory and I'm ready for that as best I can be ready for it. And then if we act in a different way, we're testing God. How then does Yeshua apply this to his current situation and the attack of the evil one who was prodding him to demonstrate his divine sonship through an extraordinary miracle? The point is that Yeshua did not need some extraordinary miracle to prove his father's faithfulness. He had perfect faith, and thus he took his father's word as proof enough. Hadn't the father already said, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. God's word came. What more do you need? To require some additional miracle in order to prove God's faithfulness would at the same time prove his own faith to be deficient. To require a miraculous demonstration of God's faithfulness could only have proceeded from a challenge of whether he was faithful in the first place. You understand what I mean by that? God, I'm not sure you really are faithful. Will you prove that to me by undisputable proof? Will you do this miracle that could not, you know, if you'll do this miracle, then I'll believe you. No, you won't. If you don't believe what he told you in his word, you won't believe it when the miracle comes either. This would have been to test God. And Yeshua is not about to break Torah. You know, why not? Why does he keep quoting Torah? Doesn't he know that he's just about to abolish it? I'm, I'm, I guess I'm being facetious. No, I mean, the point is, is that clearly he sets himself on Torah and, and he takes these Torah principles and applies them to very strategic Parts of life, temptation, so forth. The application of this principle to our own lives is clear. In a time when people are flocking after so-called miracles as a demonstration of God's presence and faithfulness, what the scriptures call us to is a simple belief that what God has said, he will do. In many cases, the signs and wonders movement runs contrary to the direct command of scripture and the example of our master, not to tempt God. I can't say who's doing some of the quote-unquote miracles. But I have my deep suspicions that it's not God. Yes. 
Right. The comments made, you know, the names of uh, Massa and Meribah are, Meribah are uh, carry the story, don't they? Yeah. And I always try to be careful. I point fingers at Israel uh, in her ancient history in the way that she was unfaithful to God. And, and I think to myself, you know, if stories were written of us or of me, how would they be different? We spend a lot of time and energy fretting about stuff we shouldn't fret about. <laughs> you know, if we honestly do believe that God is in control, then if God has promised his blessing, okay? Now, maybe some of the times we fret is because we know we've been disobedient. We know we've been lazy. We know we haven't done what he told us to do. Okay, well, there's some room for fretting there. But we can always come back to God and say, you know... Uh, uh, forgive me, and I'm, I want to get back on track here. It doesn't mean that we won't reap what we've already sown. We, we may. But uh, nonetheless, he always takes us back. He always receives us back on the basis of repentance. And in fact, that's what he, he draws us to. He calls us to it all the time. His Spirit is working within us to bring us to repentance. Um, that's what he wants. That's what he enjoys. Ken? Yeah. The comments made that you know perhaps there are those who go to a faith-healing meetings and so forth who actually are healed on the basis of their own faith and not because of the notoriety of, uh, of a person or, or the, the program that's going on. I don't ever want to deny God's ability to heal directly because I know he does. I've seen it happen. God is not in any man's box. He can, uh, he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and he can even use anybody he wants. And we may not be able to figure that all out. But I do know that uh, there's been plenty of evidence that, that many of the so-called faith healers were fakes. And uh, perhaps there were people even in those situations that were genuinely healed because God intended, he saw their heart and their, the genuineness of their faith and said, I'm going to bless you in, 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 in healing you. I mean, that's possible. So, um, but I just, I just, I hope that in my own life, uh, you know, I watched my father pass away. I've watched my mother getting old. I go visit her every week in in a home where people are sitting around waiting to die. Um, they might not look at it that way, but that's the way it appears when you walk in. Um, and it makes you think on a regular basis, how will I be when I'm that age or if, if the Lord allows me to be that age? And, and I have all kinds of physical maladies and things don't function right and... Um, will I have the joy of the Lord in the midst of those kinds of struggles and trials? So it's really easy to point fingers. Uh, I, I want to know that I can praise God in the midst of the, of the sickness that might, might uh, take my life, as well as praising God in times where he might heal me of a sickness. I think I need to be able to do both. And that's what bothers me most about the faith healing movement is that it's predicated on the idea that God wants everybody well. If that were the case, nobody should die or be sick. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the comment is being made that the issue is not so much can he do it. I think anyone who believes in God knows or must believe that he can. If he's creator, then certainly he can, he can heal. The question is, will he and why doesn't he? And I think probably the question is more, why doesn't he? And here we come back to the problem of evil, right? I mean, in a world where there is so much destruction and so much pain and suffering, how can we believe in a good God and still see what goes on around us? Um, yeah, I mean, those are those, the, whole, the whole issue of, uh, of God's goodness in the face of, of uh, pain, the problem of pain. Yeah, right, sure. 
the comments made about uh, the very presence of war in our times in Iraq. Um, a mother, a father, a uh, family member say, please, Lord, not my son. But then every mother and every father and every sibling is saying, please, not my family member. And uh, so who does God listen to? <laughs> and how does he determine? And does he determine? Or is, you know, and these are all of the questions that we have no good answers to. We do know that it's the result of sin in our world. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And probably the, the, this is a stark real, more a stark reality in this war than it has been in some wars. And that is, is that you have people who basically are saying, we're not going to be satisfied until all the world is, uh, is uh, uh, bowing five times a day to, to Mecca and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and I know there's, it's multifaceted, but what I'm saying is um, we are in a world that's dangerous, very dangerous. <laughs> and the goodness of God is always called into question in those kinds of situations. Okay, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. As noted before, the precise manner in which one would be able to see all the kingdoms of the world from an elevation in Israel is not clear. It may involve some kind of spiritual vision, though if that were the case, the reason why Matthew would include a very high mountain isn't clear. He could have had a vision in his room or in the desert where he was. Luke has only that he led him up and doesn't include the very high mountain part. Perhaps Matthew is giving us a literary parallel to the end of his gospel. When Yeshua ascends the mountain and declares, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. What Satan deceitfully suggests he can give, the Son of Man acquires through his faithful life of sacrifice before the Father. It may also be that Matthew subtly wishes wishes his readers to remember a similar situation when God took Moses up on Mount Pisgah to show him all of the land of Israel. Perhaps Matthew wants once again to emphasize that Yeshua is the fulfillment of that which Moses, uh, of which Moses was a foreshadow, and that ultimately the authority over the whole earth is granted to the risen and reigning Messiah. Though that might be a stretch. At any rate, the language of our verse is curious. The devil took him. What does it mean? The devil took him. The Greek word actually means can mean to gain control over somebody. It, it may also mean simply to take someone along as on a journey. Yet here we see once again the mystery of the incarnation. Surely Yeshua could not be constrained against his will. So he willingly goes with the tempter to this final, and Luke calls it the second. He has the second and third switched. This final temptation. The point must be that the temptation of our master was done in order to show us his own impeccable character as well as to instruct us in the manner in which we too may be victorious over the evil one's schemes. In other words, when it says Satan took him, it sounds like, um, you know, he handcuffs him and leads him away. And that just doesn't, I don't think that's what happened. I think, I think Satan may have thought he had that control, but I think Yeshua willingly went for us to show us. The tempter showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Of course, the issue of the glory, the doxa, of the kingdoms of the world is relative. From the vantage point of the evil one, their glory resides in their self-achievements. If these kingdoms possessed any glory in the eyes of the Messiah, however, it would be in their future acknowledgement of him as God's rightful king. Indeed, he had come to seek and to save those who were lost, which ultimately would include those of the nations who were chosen to be saved. Thus, the only glory the nations really possess is dependent upon the completion of Yeshua's own salvific death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. I thought about this passage when, I was fl- when we were flying into Edmonton and uh, 
I've thought about it previously when I've been flying into various cities. If you fly into a city at night, you see the whole thing. You know, at first it's just kind of that that kind of glow on the horizon where you see all the lights. And, and then you come in, you begin to see, and, you know, I mean, when you fly into New York or when you fly into uh, L.A. or, or San Francisco or, or uh, Dallas or these larger cities, I mean, it's huge. But I'm not, you know, I think to myself, okay, if he's looking at all these cities, what glory is he seeing? There's a lot of garbage in cities. In, and the bigger the city, the more garbage. So what, the point that I'm making is that from Satan's viewpoint, wow, look at these big cities. And you get the feeling that, that Yeshua was more of a country boy. You know, he was raised kind of out in the village. So I don't know why Satan would have thought that there would have been a big draw for the, all of these big, glorious cities. Maybe Satan has a different view of the city than we do. But he sees all the people in these big cities. And he recognizes that value. And he, that is, Satan said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. We know, of course, that Satan had no actual ability to give what he offered, since the sovereign of the universe is God. The psalmist writes, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Yet the evil one is given for a time some authority within the inhabited world. Satan is known as the God of this world and the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 6.12, Satan is included in the world rulers, cosmocraton. John also states in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The authority given to the evil one in order to bring about the divine purposes is nonetheless temporary. Indeed, the coming of the Messiah and his ultimate victory over death secured the end of Satan's reign and his ultimate demise. Thus, what he holds out to Yeshua is nothing more than a dishonest salesman's ploy. The goods are not actually his to give. So what was the temptation then? The temptation was that Yeshua could gain the ultimate authority without fulfilling his role as the suffering servant of the Lord. It was an offer to ascend the throne of kingship while bypassing the cross, and more than that, a temptation to achieve power by worship of God's rival. This is always a satanic tactic to offer power to those who would bow to his authority, a power that denies the very source of life and authority that is God himself. It's, it's built in us, by the way of sin nature at least. We'd like to get a lot for doing nothing. We'd like not to have to do the pain in order to get the gain. Right? What did I hear? Uh, I think it was uh, uh, Michael Medved on his uh, syndicated program uh, a third, I think. Maybe it's more than that. Or is it two-thirds? Anyway, it's either a third or two-thirds of everyone who wins the lotto declares bankruptcy. Is that amazing? So when you get something and it didn't cost you anything, it, it, it really does not have a lot of value for you. It's an amazing thing. Um, some of us who are uh, big-hearted moms and dads need to keep in mind that sometimes when we give our kids things, it's not to their advantage. If they haven't learned and earned it, learned the, the necessity of work and earned it, they, giving it to them may actually be worse than if they didn't have it. It's a hard lesson to learn because, you know, we want to give things to our kids. We want to give, we want to, you know, bless them in ways that we didn't think maybe we were blessed when we were kids and so forth. At first, it seems that such a suggestion could hardly have been a temptation for our master. Surely he would not have succumbed to idolatry as a means of gaining his rightful rule and reign. But we must again remember that Yeshua, as the incarnate one, had accepted the character of mankind with many of its weaknesses. It is not a sin to be weak. And within the created soul of man, there is an aversion to death. 
We hear this in our Master's garden prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Why did he pray that? Do you think that was just a theological thing so that we would know he really had to go to go through the death? Well, I think it was that, but it was more than that. I think he really didn't want to die. It's not normal human thought process to just say, yeah, kill me. This will be cool. That, that person is mentally ill. As our master faced his own death, he did so as a man, and it was only natural that he should inwardly seek to overcome it. Thus, the offer of attaining glory without having to die as the Lamb of God contains some value from a strictly human perspective. But we must also see that this third temptation was made known to us in order that we might understand the utter necessity of our master's sacrifice. It was only through his full submission to the Father, rendering himself as the guilt offering for those he would redeem, that his obedience would be perfect and his mission complete. Yet not my will but yours be done. That's how he ends that prayer. There was no other way. Satan specifically says, fall down and worship. This language is reminiscent of the Hebrew verb chava, always used in the hishtafel form, hishtachaveh, which generally means to bow oneself or even to lay prone before someone. For this reason, it is also very often used in the Tanakh for worship. I give you a bunch of references from Psalms particularly. The verb used in our verse, the Greek verb, proskuneo, regularly is used by the Septuagint to translate this Hebrew verb. The sages understood bowing as an indication of of worship and defined idolatry as bowing to anything or anyone other than God. And I just uh, gave you a snippet out of Mishnah Sanhedrin 7 in which they're trying to define what would an, an idolater be? How in the court would they define an idolater? He who beguiles others, that is, leads one to idolatry, is one who says, I am going to worship. That means worship an idol. I shall go and worship. Let's go and worship. I shall make an offering. I shall go and make an offering. Let's go and make an offering. I shall offer incense. I shall go and offer incense. Let's go and offer incense. I shall make a libation. I shall go and make a libation. Let's go and make a libation. I shall bow down. I shall go and bow down. Let's go and bow down. Any one of those phrases heard by somebody as they're on their way to the idol house, they can be convicted of idolatry. Even if they haven't made it there yet. In other words, the intention to go and bow, worship, and so forth. But I just brought that in to say, to show you that bowing was an essential part of worship. So when Satan says, bow down to me, it clearly means worship him, give him a place of authority. Then Yeshua said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Uh, have any of you ever read the cotton patch version of the Bible? It's, it's a little bit bowdy at times, a little bit earthy. But I, I liked. I, I don't have it anymore. I, I looked for it in my in my stacks. I I don't know what happened to it. But um, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, but there's one version. I think it was the Cotton Pass version that that says "Go to hell, Satan," which which I thought was kind of an interesting, um, you know, go back where you belong. <laughs> um, maybe that's the only time that that wouldn't be vulgar is to tell Satan to uh, return to the pit. Uh, then Yeshua said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In this final temptation, Satan does not attempt to quote Scripture for obvious reasons. Nothing in the Tanakh could be twisted to support the worship of anyone other than Israel's God. 
But once again, in our master's response, he relies upon the Torah, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. But first he asserts his rightful authority and commands Satan to leave. He does not issue the command on the basis of his divine status as the Son of God, but on the basis of what is written in the Torah. It says, go, Satan, for it is written. He doesn't say, go, Satan, because I'm the Son of God and I tell you to go. No, 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 he doesn't say that. He says, go, Satan, for it is written. This teaches us that we have the same authority to demand Satan's exit. The word of God stands as our weapon against the evil one as well. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You and I have the same power to say to Satan, you got to go. For it is written. Now, you just have to know what's written. Satan has no option but to yield to the powerful and authoritative word of God. This in itself is sufficient reason to be very familiar with God's word. The direct and terse command that Satan was to leave comes up again when Peter suggests that Yeshua could attain his victory apart from the sacrificial death for which he had come. Remember, he says, I must go and die and in three days be raised. And Peter says, no, no, never. And what does Yeshua respond to him? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why? That's exactly the same temptation Satan gave him, that he could have the crown without the cross. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. In other words, God has sent me here for this. This is why I have come. The command in our text is go. Hugage satana. The verb hupago may be used commonly to denote go away, but it may also be used with a further nuance meaning to die. Thus, Yeshua says in Matthew 26, the son of man is to go, same verb, just as it is written of him. Now, we understand that to mean go on the journey of death. We may thus suggest that Yeshua's command to Satan is more on the order of die, Satan, be gone. Indeed, the ultimate demise of the evil one will come through the death of the Messiah. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. When, when the scriptures say, death, where is your sting? We're not, saying, we're not saying that death is okay. We're not saying that there isn't sorrow and pain in death. But what we're saying is, there's not an ultimate and deep fear in death like there, are, like there is for someone who does not know God. I've been with numbers of people when they died. And I'll tell you, people who truly know the Lord die in peace. They really do. Yeah, the last uh, scriptures that I ever read with my dad was Psalm 23. My dad, uh, I think most of you know, had, had died with Alzheimer's. And uh, he had studied the Bible pretty much all of his life from the time he was in, I don't know, high school or junior high. Um, he knew the Bible better than anybody I know. And uh, But at the end of his life, he couldn't read it because he couldn't remember how to read. I mean, he'd lost the ability to read. But there were occasionally some things would come back, you know, just every once in a while. So we were reading Psalm 23, and I was, kind of, I was helping him with phrases, words. And, and he came to the part that said, um, Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, and he couldn't, you know, I was helping him with each of those words, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death. And then suddenly he said, just in strong voice, I will fear no evil. I thought, well, that one was pretty well placed. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't that much longer that he passed away. I mean, he was ready. He knew, he knew God, and he, uh, he was ready. He had lived a long time in order to die well. So, our master quotes uh, Deuteronomy 
You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And I give you the Hebrew text as well as Septuagint text, uh, essentially the same. The only difference, of course, is you can see that in the uh, Matthew uh, quote, uh, we have worship in the first clause, whereas in the Hebrew we have fear, as is also in the Septuagint. The other thing is, is that um, our uh, English transl- uh, the Greek translation of Matthew puts the word only in there, which is not found either in the Septuagint or in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew text, the sense of only is not found in the words themselves, but it is found in the syntax, I would, I would uh, suggest. And that's because those of you that have taken Hebrew know that in biblical Hebrew, the order is usually verb, subject, object. That's the normal order. When you put the object at the very beginning of the clause, it really emphasizes it. And that's what we have here. Et Adonai Elohecha tira. Adonai your God you shall fear, meaning only him. He's the one you should fear and nobody else. And in the next clause, you have the same, same thing. Ve'oto ta'avod. And him. Now you have the object put first in the clause rather than second. And so the word order, I think, suggests exactly what Yeshua is saying. Him only shall you worship. Matthew quotes from the subject, and I said, um, with the exception that he replaces fear with worship or bowing. We should also know that the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 6.13 is identical with the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 10.20, even though the Hebrew is different. But the opening lines of each of these verses is the same in the Hebrew, and this is the part that Yeshua quotes. The change from fear, yara or phobeo, to worship, proskune neo, is interpretive but accurate. To fear God means to obey him, and I've given you some references, and thus to bow to his rule. Thus, Deuteronomy 6.13, by commanding to fear the Lord your God, means precisely what Yeshua says, to worship or bow before him in the sense of recognizing his ultimate rule and sovereignty. It should also be noted that the parallelism is emphatic. Those who fear or worship the Lord likewise serve him. There is no Greek bifurcation of thought and deed in the Hebrew worldview. In other words, you can't say in your head, I fear him, or in your heart that I believe in him, and then not serve him. If you don't serve him, you don't fear him. It's just that simple. But Yorah is regularly used, and if you have a concordance, you can see this time and time again. Yorah, to fear the Lord, is oftentimes paralleled with obey him or keep his commandments. You shall fear the Lord and walk in his ways. You shall fear the Lord and keep his commandments. So the fear of the Lord is the recognition that he is the sovereign one. That's what it, that, that he is your king. And that, and that recognition then works its way out in one's life. Finally, verse 11, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. The evil one has no choice but to obey the command of the master, and so he leaves. Some have suggested that since the verb to leave is actually in the present tense in the the Greek, the meaning is left for a time. But Matthew has used the present tense all along here, so I don't think that's that's any big point here. Luke has, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Mark notes the presence of angels who minister to Yeshua during the entire 40 days, but Luke does not mention their presence. Matthew's use of behold is most likely a mark of solemnity, signaling not not only the end of the trial, that is, of the trial of temptation and fasting, but also the victory that Yeshua demonstrated over the enemy of our souls. The text indicates that the angels ministered to Yeshua, which can have the general sense of serve, it's the typical word, it's the verb 
diakoneo, from which we get the word deacon. It can have the general sense to serve, but it can also mean to give to eat, as in Matthew 25, 44. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And the phrase take care means is the same word, to serve. So serving can, can involve, just like we say, right? Serving tables. Same idea. The word serving can mean to feed. We may also note the parallel to Elijah in 1 Kings, who was fed by an angel twice. He got angel food twice and it sustained him for 40 days. <clears throat> but even more fitting is the story of the manna that sustained Israel in the desert. One commentator has said, Jesus did not turn stones to bread, nor did he force God to send angels. Instead, he trusted the Father in heaven, and all of his needs were met. We are therefore given the example of our master. Number one, we defeat the enemy by consistent application of the inspired word to our lives. You know, you probably thought of this too, but I thought of, you know, if for some reason you just had to, you know, some terrible thing happened and you just had to leave with what you could carry in your hands, what would you take? You know, I'd want a Bible. So we defeat the enemy by consistent application of the inspired word to our lives, and we walk victoriously by faith in the one who has promised to preserve us. It's both of those, isn't it? It's reliance upon him and its application of the word of God. It's two sides kind of of the same coin. In other words, you can't just sit at your desk all day and study your Bible. You've got to take that with you to your workplace, to your kitchen, uh, wherever you are, to your classroom, uh, you have to take that and say, okay, as the events come up, and you can't order those events, so you have to be quick on your feet with regard to the Word of God. What, does the script, how do, what do the Scriptures tell me? How am I to uh, act in this, in this situation? What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? And that's where the wisdom comes. Yeshua is the author and completer of our faith, and we do well to fix our gaze upon him, as the writer of the Hebrews said. If you want to know how to defeat the enemy, we just had a course in it, right here in this, in this chapter, Matthew 4. So, let's practice. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. 